0: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now Chief Executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought provoking dialogue. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Richard Root this week. Richard is a true champion of cancer in the UK. He is a general practitioner with a special interest in cancer management and senior clinical advisor for prevention and early diagnosis at Cancer Research UK. Earlier this year, Richard finished a six-year term as clinical champion for cancer at the Royal College of General Practitioners, and he has been a member of the National Cancer Advisory Group and continues to be involved in a number of national cancer steering groups. It is no surprise that in 2015, Richard was elected to the Fellowship of the Royal College of GPs for his contributions to cancer management. Richard, thank you so much for joining me on Extra Time, and welcome.
1: Thank you. It's a real privilege to be with you today. The privilege is all ours. We'll start in a
0: moment to talk about your work in cancer prevention and treatment. But firstly, I was hoping to get a little bit of um, background, if you don't mind. I was hoping you might tell us what inspired you to focus your primary care practice on early detection and prevention in cancer in the first place.
1: Well, it's quite an interesting uh, narrative, really. Uh, It was essentially serendipity. So with Restructuring of the NHS back in the late 1990s. I was at the time uh, something called the lead for the vulnerable for what was then called a primary care group. And they were looking at reconfiguration and they were looking at 16 GPs being uh, whittled down to seven on a new board. And rather than standing for election, they said a vacancy's come up in the cancer lead role. Are you interested, Richard? and my whole uh, sort of driver through my medical career has been to make a difference and uh, I thought cancer is a realm in which I can make a real difference. It's uh, a condition that probably has affected someone that everyone knows if not themselves Mm -hmm. and to be able to make a difference to enable people to reduce their risk of developing cancer and where that hasn't been possible to be able to Achieve an earlier diagnosis with a much better chance of a cure uh, is a real driving force and something that has uh, kept me going through the ups and downs of the last decade or so. I'm
0: sure there were um, plenty of challenges um, in the early days of your work in Hampshire and uh, Wessex throughout the, the noughties. but but fast forward to to 2020 and we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, which has put extreme pressure on cancer services globally. Every week we see the media reporting the devastating effects the
1: pandemic has had on on our cancer services. Is this the biggest challenge yet? I think it probably is Um, and there have been challenges along the way uh, but I think this is something to really sit up and take notice of. uh, The Covid era season, whatever we're going to call it, Uh, resulted in a huge drop-off in uh, patients coming forward and obviously the hospital services were completely stretched attending to COVID and with all the new uh, requirements in place it is a real challenge as to how we both restore what we're doing but also uh, catch up with uh, what we've missed out on in the past few months. I'm always
0: fascinated by the data that we see on our tv screens every evening from the British government. The data of course has been suggesting more recently that at least 14,000 fewer patients have um, been referred for lung cancer tests since the end of March when we went into lockdown for the pandemic. Um, Yet we know that early cancer detection of lung cancer is, is key to survival.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, uh, really up-to-date data suggests that that 14,000 may actually be nearer 20,000. So it is a, a pretty dramatic situation to find ourselves in. And we really need to see how we can change things, modify things, be smart and catch up on those who haven't come forward. Uh, and then put in place the referral pathways and investigation pathways to really help these people Get a a diagnosis as soon as possible if they have the misfortune to have a developing lung cancer.
0: It sounds like it's going to be a Herculean task to get on top of um, this this bowel wave of underdiagnosed disease. You still practice at the at the
1: coalface. Tell tell me what it's been like in your practice. So, I mean, there, there have been some really good things that have come through from uh, COVID. So, we've probably seen five years of progress in terms of using IT. That happened over probably five weeks. Uh, it was pump, pi- pump primed by uh, funding, which uh, basically unblocked uh, the coffers. Uh, those colleagues who were perhaps more resistant to change were given no choice. so the, the sort of the blockers to change were silenced. So we now have a, uh, an IT system that is really effective. So pre-Covid, we were probably doing 10% of our consultations either by e-consult, which is essentially uh, by email or by telephone. And now it's probably reversed so that 90% of our consultations will be done either by phone or by text or by email. And where we need to see a patient, we do have the facility to bring them in to a more conventional appointment where we're face to face albeit with our face protection and the doctor wearing the full PPE.
0: I mean, like, like you, I've seen so many success stories as a, as a resultant of this, um, this pandemic and the way in which we've responded to it. And whilst I, whilst I understand that COVID has been very much a, 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 a distraction, um, can, can you help me understand a little better what, are the, what have been the main barriers to ensuring that patients are diagnosed and treated for cancer in a timely manner?
1: I would say one of the biggest things is that patients have been uh, adhering to the advice to save our NHS and to not trouble the system uh, and that whole uh, sort of advice media campaign in the early days of Covid proved to be really successful and uh, I've heard it referred to as Project Fear that actually sort of the fear of the pandemic was projected and having seen the scenes in northern Italy and so forth you could see that that was entirely appropriate right at the beginning and that early target that the government set that the NHS should not be overwhelmed was achieved and I think sometimes we lose sight of that that the, the goal was set and was achieved very successfully and there were, I think, there were only one or two hospitals that actually were stretched to complete capacity, where patients were then having to be deflected to other hospitals. It did require huge seismic change, uh, with a reallocation of roles for some uh, hospital colleagues. But I think the way the NHS responded to it was remarkable, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Uh, but that said, uh, I think we probably now have overplayed that and we need patients to, to really notice their symptoms and come and talk to us about it. And uh, there has been a media shout that GPs have uh, not been available, that their surgeries have been shut, and that hasn't actually been the case at all. We've been working probably harder than we've ever worked before. Uh, we're probably dealing with upwards of 60 patients a day, uh, which is uh, quite a tall ask and quite draining. Uh, but I think GPs have really uh, risen to the challenge and we are open for business and we want our patients to come back and, and uh, contact us and we can then review their symptoms and, where necessary, see them and make that very important referral where we need to.
0: And my own personal experience with my children has, has been only incredibly positive of um, primary care services that we've accessed over the, over the last six months, an incredible amount of creativity and lateral thinking flexibility. Um, to ensure that um, my children have been able to get the care that they need um when they need it um, and so I certainly applaud you and your colleagues for all of the work that you've um you've undertaken um uh, Mr Johnson of course I think earlier this week um recognised the uh, impact that the public policy messaging had had upon um people use, using critical nhs services and and uh, the knock on effect upon cancer diagnosis rates um, in, the, in the country. But, but do you feel, do you think um, that uh, all cancers are going to have been affected equally? Uh, or or, or do, you, do you think that we're going to be seeing some cancers that um, have, have been affected um, more so um, than others as a result of um, the, the underutilization of the,
1: the service that currently exists? Yeah, I think all cancers have been affected, but clearly there are some that have been affected more than others. And in particular, lung cancer seems to stand out on its own in that the initial drop was huge. We probably went down to a quarter of the normal referrals through to a clinic to explore symptoms that could be caused by lung cancer. Uh, I think what is different between the different cancer sites is the recovery. Uh, so for a lot of cancers they're now back to their pre-COVID referral rates but mm. lung cancer mm. is still round about the 50% mark so it dropped to about 25% of the normal referral rate we're up to about 50% but we've still got that final 50% to recover and I think that is because many of the symptoms do overlap with COVID Yes. Yeah. So, so patients will have their persistent cough they'll go on the 111 side will tell them what to do. And the patient very understandably just thinks, well, it's probably COVID. I'll do my isolation at home with the rest of the family. And when things settle, I'll get back. And then if the cough doesn't get better, they think, oh, well, we read in the press that it may be long COVID. And it's probably that, uh, when actually all along, it's a developing lung cancer.
0: Yes, I can see that there is some blurring of the lines between the symptoms in in both um, a respiratory illness and, and a lung cancer which has potentially had a, a, an adverse effect upon diagnosis rates and um, um, that, that, that certainly is unfortunate. The, the, the impact uh, upon the immediate um, under-diagnosed cancers today we've spoken about but do you feel that um, there is going to be a, a long-term a negative or indeed positive impact upon cancer services in the NHS as a result of this pandemic?
1: I think the uh, it's both that uh, traditional Chinese metaphor of that here we have a crisis and it's both, both an opportunity and a threat. Hmm. So there are some positives. So it has probably brought primary care and secondary care. So general practice and the hospital specialists closer together. So we have new lines of communication that weren't previously there. So it's now possible to essentially text a consultant and you'll get a, a text back and then you can have a phone call and that facility just wasn't there pre-COVID. We've probably refined the referral pathways, so we're now doing things in different sequencing. So, for example, pre-COVID, if a patient was referred, they would be seen in outpatients, then have their tests, and then have a review appointment. Now what happens is they're assessed over the phone pretty much the same day. The tests are all done first, and then they're seen for the first time after the tests. And that may well have taken out Uh, possibly four weeks out of the the referral pathway and the diagnostic pathway. And for some cancers, that will make a real difference. So there is definitely a a silver lining to this pretty dark cloud. So there are some positives. Uh, The negatives are that we've got a whole uh, sort of backlog of patients who need sorting. And at the moment, the challenge is that because of all the PPE requirements and the cleaning requirements, that the number of patients that can be seen in a diagnostic setting are less per hour than was previously the case.
0: So Professor Peter Johnson, the National Clinical Director for, for Cancer, um, has the unenviable task of standing up a new task force, a cancer task force announced only this week um, in order to deal with um, the, the backlog challenge that we've, um, we've, we've described and, and of course um, create that opportunity um, that you allude to. Um, in in the delivery of cancer services, uh, moving moving forward, what what do you think are his immediate challenges? Where is he going to be focusing his teams his teams effort off the bat?
1: I think it makes sense to essentially go for that old cliche, the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, I think we need to have in place uh, the testing so that staff can be at work. So at the moment, if uh, a radiologist has a child who spikes a fever, that child really needs a test because otherwise the radiologist is grounded at home for two weeks. So really important to keep the workforce in place and active and we really need access to all frontline staff and their families to have immediate testing where it's needed so that we can get them back to work as quickly as possible. We've had a situation in, uh, in my own practice where one of my colleague's daughter's spiked a fever and we had to try and source a a test for that uh, uh, girl. And it meant that my colleague basically had to do remote working, which we can now do. So it wasn't as uh, disruptive as if you were a radiologist or radiographer having to do things where you clearly can't do that from home. Uh, But you can just see the issues that that creates. So we need to get testing done and settled for all staff and their families. And then we really need to resource the diagnostics uh, so, that we can get pe- uh, patients through this diagnostic process and onto treatment as quickly as possible. And then finally, we need treatment to be delivered and we need to get that message across to patients that hospitals are safe and that they can attend for treatment. Uh, because the earlier we get treatment, the more likely we are to get a good outcome.
0: I, I'm sure there's going to be plenty an anxious patient and school nurse over the, the coming months as the cough and cold season hits young children at the school gate. Um, the question being, who has COVID and who doesn't? And as you say, um, sourcing, sourcing tests. Um, is, is particularly challenging um, at the moment. But let's maybe step back from, from the distraction of the pandemic that occupies us so much at the moment. And, and, and if I may, um, I, I, I'm keen to just learn a little bit about changing attitudes over your 20 years worth of focus on, on cancer um, management um, to, to, to early detection and, and indeed prevention. Um, of the disease. What have, what have you seen that, that has changed dramatically over that time?
1: So I think it's still a work in progress, but this idea that historically, and certainly at the beginning of my career, it was the case that cancer was a clinical area that was for my hospital colleagues, and other than the initial referral and the end of life care, GPs really weren't involved. And I think what has become more apparent, and we continue to promote the message. Uh, through as many avenues as possible we know that give or take 40 percent of cancers are related to behaviors and that if we can generate behavior change we can prevent 40 percent of cancers sadly the flip side of that is that 60 percent of cancers you could be the have the perfect um, halo in terms of the way you live your life and the activities you get up to the diet you have the exercise you take, you avoid the smoking, avoid the drinking, et cetera, et cetera. But 60% of cancers you can do nothing about. And in that situation, what is really important is to get that diagnosis made. And what has changed probably in the last 10 years are the developments of the early detection. Uh, so uh, blood markers and things of that sort are, are really coming through now, and they will have a real part to play as we try and hone in on diagnosing cancer at an early stage. So one of the concepts we use is stage shift. Uh, So we're able to uh, categorize cancers as stage one, two, three, or four with one being the earliest and four being the latest. And we're trying to reduce as many threes and fours and convert them into ones and twos because those are eminently treatable and in many cases curable.
0: Yes, that's, um, that's a really important concept, isn't it? The earlier a disease is, is detected, and particularly in the case of um, cancer, um, the, the better the survival when a treatment is, is instigated from the disease. And of course, that, that takes us very neatly onto my real passion, um, an area close to my heart, which is, which is diagnostics and in particular early detection of cancer. And so, so, so what role do you see these diagnostic tests that we've all become so familiar with as a result of the pandemic having in, in, uh, in detecting cancer early and, and, and ultimately improving patient outcomes?
1: Yeah, and I think the, we're moving into almost a new season. Uh, so if you look particularly uh, in the realm of lung cancer, what we know is that historically, those who've been diagnosed at a very early stage were probably just incredibly fortunate. So if we turn the clocks back, there was a big Public Health England campaign called the Be Clear on Cancer campaign, Mm -hmm. where we were encouraging uh, patients to come forward if they'd had a cough that had lasted for three weeks or more. And we were able, in the course of that programme, which ran over about six weeks, uh, the data analysis showed that we made 400 additional early diagnoses of cancer When you reflect on those, it is almost certain that their cough was not actually caused by that early cancer. And they just had a cough. We did the chest X-ray and we found a small shadow, which was then amenable to curable treatment. So if we are then able to have a means of checking out those who are at high risk of cancer, we can actually detect a cancer before it's generated symptoms. And in the case of several cancers, that is where progress can only be made. For some cancers, it's very obvious because uh, the symptoms are quite visible. So, for instance, if you have a dodgy mole, we can get to that very quickly because either you or a loved one has been looking at it. They're worried. They see it changing. You get the tap on the shoulder. Go and see your GP. That could be something dodgy. Likewise, if you have blood in your wee or blood in your poo, that can be assessed very quickly. It's very visible. But for some of the internal organs, such as the lung or the pancreas or the ovary, those three in particular, we don't get symptoms until the cancers are quite advanced. So if we can uh, use tests that may be forthcoming, that are good at detecting early markers of cancer before they've even produced symptoms, that would really be the holy grail in addressing early diagnosis of cancer.
0: Yes, I see, I see that there's a real challenge um, in detecting the asymptomatic patient without signs of disease, um, over and above the challenge of detecting disease in patients with symptoms or or signs of um, of the disease, a, a challenge I'm sure that's going to exercise you and your your colleagues for the the next twenty years of your um, your career. Um, and I'm delighted that you're um, you're, you're remaining um, focused um, focused on that area. Um, Richard, finally, um, if if I may, I would I would I would like to ask you, as I do everyone, to pick three people that should you be able to nominate them to sit where you are now and, and ask them a question. Who may those people be um, and what question might you ask them?
1: So the first person I would bring into the chair would be uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. Yes. And I would ask her, how have you achieved what you've achieved in New Zealand? And could you have a chat with our policymakers and politicians in this country and share your wisdom? Uh, I think number two would be the human resources director at BBC and ask them why <laughs> they don't appoint scientists to be science correspondents and health experts to be health correspondents because they are delightful people, but they don't necessarily have a background in science. <laughs> and then the third, which is sort of related to that, would be just head of media organisations. And I, wouldn't, I could pick on any one of them saying, please, can you present data in a scientific manner and look at rates per million population when you're doing comparisons? Because I just sit with smoke coming out of my ears with a lot of news programs where they just present raw data. So, for instance, they'll say Brazil's had the second largest number of Covid cases. Well, yes, it would do because it's a huge country with a huge population. So if they could start comparing light with light, that would be really helpful. But also this sort of fixation at the moment with the Covid data. Every death is a tragedy for that family. But you're looking at numbers of deaths from Covid that are a fraction of those dying each and every day from the results of smoking, for example. So yesterday, I think there were 35 odd cases of Covid deaths. Absolutely tragic for the families concerned. And our thoughts go out to them. But there were also two hundred people who died from smoking yesterday, and that doesn't get a flicker in the media. So those would be yes. my. Th- there are the three people who I would uh, maybe give a, a either a good time or a hard time to. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, uh, even,
0: even as an armchair expert like myself, you do get the sense that we compare apples and pears and, and rarely get the opportunity um, to find um, comparative data through which we can size the effect of um, the disease through, through media reporting. I don't know whether I can help you with uh, the BBC or any of the other media outlets, um, but certainly um, Prime Minister... Ardent, if you are out there listening to the show, um, your letter is in the post. Um, please do come and join us and, um, and we'll see whether we can ask you those, those questions from Dr. Richard Roop. Richard, thank you very much. You've been an absolute gentleman. We've learned an awful lot. And thank you very much for your work over the last six months and indeed um, the last
1: two decades. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to join you and uh, wish you well.